Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Beck Strading, the Executive Director of La Trobe, Asia. In today's podcast, we will be considering the state of Australia and India relations and opportunities for deepening cooperation between governments, states, and communities. Today, I am delighted to welcome Lisa Singh to the podcast. Lisa was a Senator for Tasmania in the Australian Federal Parliament from 2011 to 2019, and prior to that, a member of the Tasmanian House of Assembly. Lisa is also the Deputy Chair of the Australian India Council. Welcome, Lisa. It's terrific to have you on the podcast. Thank you for giving us the time today. Thank you, Beck. So let's get into the questions. I mean, bilateral relations between Australia and India have sometimes been described as one of unfulfilled potential. So why has this been the case and do you think that this is changing? Well, firstly, I would probably agree with that description of unfulfilled potential in the relationship. I mean, despite the fact that we've got really common historical connections, obviously proximity to each other in the Indian Ocean, we've got our shared values of democracy and the rule of law. I think now, though, there are a range of contemporary strategic and economic factors at play between both Australia and India that perhaps weren't there say, half a century ago or more. So today, clearly, these two countries with their shared, you know, interests beyond good governance and democracy have articulated very much a mutual support for an open and free international rules-based Indo-Pacific, one that's free of coercion, that addresses some of the common security challenges such as terrorism, human trafficking and non-traditional security threats, as well as, of course, the rise of China. So things are very much changing. And in that space, India itself lives in a very changing neighbourhood, potentially made more challenging in the last few days with the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. I think what is clear, though, is that we both, both Australia and India, both want a stable and prosperous and inclusive region And that is an important foundation, I think, for a stronger bilateral relationship that can formulate policy convergence. And I think, you know, a display of support from a range of leaders that we saw last Sunday for India's 75th Independence Day shows just how much we do value India as the largest democracy in the world. But, of course, it's also the fastest-growing economy and that brings huge opportunities for Australia In my role on the Australia-India Council, we recently delivered 11 grants to a range of Australian and Indian entities who are helping build the relationship in a range of sectors from promoting sustainable livestock production to innovation advancements in neurosurgical procedures, you know, a range of them that are on the AIC website. So, look, I think Australia's future economic growth and security must include stronger ties compared to where we were with that unfulfilled potential that we've had in the past. And I think the bilateral relationship is going through very much that transformative period right now. And part of that transformation must include recognition, by the way, 
of Australia's growing Indian diaspora, a very much untapped resource here in Australia. I think, though, Beck, that Australia's political and economic engagement with India is still in its infancy. There's been a number of false starts over decades and not a lot of consistent effort. But I do think now the potential for growth in the relationship is enormous because there is a lot more alignment on how both countries see the world and we need to harness that. I'm glad that you mentioned some of the economic engagement issues because there have been efforts to identify opportunities for deepening economic engagement, including Australia's uh, India Economic Strategy to 2035. This was released a couple of years ago, but that as a strategy document it seems to have disappeared or, or sunk without a trace. What do you see as being necessary for India and Australia to improve the economic relations? Because this seems to be uh, an issue that the bilateral relationship has sometimes struggled to really deal with. As I said, I think our economic relations need a lot more effort, particularly as India's economy itself is shifting and just getting on to the IES, you know, the India Economic Strategy, which was an independently authored strategy by former Secretary of DFAT and former High Commissioner to India, Peter Varghese, but commissioned by government, is still very much the most comprehensive blueprint to drive the relationship forward. But it was written at a time before the COVID-19 pandemic, So I think the review of priorities that are outlined in that strategy that understand is actually currently going on by DFAT, I think that is very much welcome considering the times we're currently living in. But also what's occurred since the IES is India has released its own Australia economic strategy by Ambassador Anil Wadwa, first of its kind in India. And also on top of that, since the IES, there's been the elevation of the Australia-India relationship last year by both Prime Ministers Modi and Morrison to a comprehensive strategic partnership. So all of that builds on the IES. That virtual summit was, you know, in the middle of a pandemic last year, was indeed significant. And the outcomes spelled how both nations want to move the dial forward on the relationship, not just economically, but strategically, as well as in a range of other areas. So on the backdrop of all of that, the IES is still very much an important blueprint. But our economic relationship needs to be seen for the long-term history not the short term. And I think Peter Varghese himself stated that, you know, there is no single market over the next 20 years that will offer more growth opportunities for Australia than India. And that still holds true. Having said that, last year, I think India was our seventh largest trading partner. So for a country that has the fastest growing economy with enormous potential, it really should be much higher than that. And I think that that's where the IES does come into play. What's useful and unique about it is the way it's broken down into 10 sectors in 10 states in India. India is very much a country of states with different geographical, political and cultural dynamics, so it makes sense to break it down that way. But that doesn't mean, you know, that we can't aim for something bigger and I know that currently the Australian government is pursuing a free trade agreement with India again. I think that's eminently sensible, 
But such an ambition should not be the be-all and end-all, I think, in terms of our economic ties with India. I think there should be opportunities to create sector-based wins like that are identified in the IES or in other areas, critical minerals, for example, is very much on the table, infrastructure or even in the educational sector. All of those sectors shouldn't be ignored. So in a way, I just think we shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good in relation to an FTA. We should look at what can we do right now? We need to diversify our markets with India beyond the sort of primary commodities exports that we've done in the past, value adding. I think all of that is key to driving our economic relationship going forward. Well, just on this and the sort of economic opportunities that exist, Australian government recently sent Tony Abbott to India as a a special trade envoy, and he was reported to have said that the answer to almost every question about China is India. Is there a sense perhaps that Australia's move to deepen security and trade relations with India is in fact really driven less by its wanting to deepen relationship with India, but more about its concerns around a rising China? And if this is the case, is this really the best way of engaging with India? Look, I think Australia has been deepening its relationship with India for a decade now. But with various levels of effort and clearly the elevation of the relationship to a comprehensive strategic partnership last year has very much lifted the profiles of both countries' common interests and their shared values and their commitments to a rules-based international order. But I think what's needed right now is, is continuity, it's depth, it's a lot more effort. The India relationship is critically important geopolitically, obviously, and economically, But it is about more than that. And it it does not take trade barriers from China for Australia to want to seriously engage with India. In fact, I think there is a real risk that if we don't move fast enough, other nations will leap ahead and take our ground. And in some sectors, you can see that already happening. You know, higher ed might be an example of that. So, look, I, I really appreciate that government sent former Prime Minister Tony Abbott on this trade envoy as an advocate for a trade deal. But the reasons for doing it should not be just because of Australia's political challenges on China trade relations or geopolitical uh, challenges. I think we need clear signalling that Australia places India as a high priority in its economic and foreign policy agenda. And a trade agreement, of course, is one part of that. But the gains that have been made so far must not be lost against the current sort of challenges that we face in the relationship that have been brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic. And they are real. Australia, I think, needs to address those in terms of its building its bilateral ties. You know, any harm that's been caused, for example, by the recent temporary travel bans to India, the ongoing COVID-19 restrictions preventing Indian students unable to return to Australia to complete their university studies and also the Indian diaspora's frustrations that have been shared with me about them being unable to bring their children and family home. I think all of those issues do need to be addressed and not only would sort of policy solutions to them address the sort of massive economic downturn that we're currently seeing in Australia's university sector, but it would also rekindle our people-to-people links. And I think 
the issue at the moment with some of those issues is there's just no time frame on them, particularly when, you know, we're nearly at the end, not quite, but getting towards the end of a university year. What's the sort of strategy in terms of time frame for Indian international students coming to Australia for 2022? Well, certainly a significant issue for those of us uh, sitting in a university right now. So I did mention before that you are currently the Deputy Chair of the Australia India Council. And from what I've, I've read of your, your advocacy and your interests, you're quite interested in the people-to-people links that you were just sort of talking about. And India is the fastest growing diaspora in Australia. So uh, why do these people-to-people links matter for the bilateral relationship more broadly in your view? Well, I think diaspora leaders in Australia can play a crucial role in building ties between both nations. I mean, our diaspora understands the India side as much as they do the Australia side. They really are an untapped resource in Australia and I think need to be taken up to the highest levels of government to play more of an influential role in the relationship. I think Australia's engagement with India can become a catalyst for a much greater focus on soft diplomacy through deepening Indian diaspora leadership engagement. And I do think this is an area worthy further investigation as to why Australia is underperforming on utilising its Indian diaspora groups as a vehicle for deepening the bilateral relationship, considering its natural advantage with India through historical Commonwealth links the fact that it's got a, a much larger diaspora size than a lot of other Western countries per head of population. So if you look at, you know, the Indian diaspora in, say, the US or the UK, they have risen to influential leadership roles in both the public and, and private sectors. Whereas in, in Australia, since the end of the White Australia policy, Australia's India diaspora has, has grown considerably. I think today it's about 2.8% of Australia's population, one of the fastest growing migrant communities made up of Australians of Indian origin, but also Indian residents that include highly skilled professionals, highly educated students that make a significant social and economic contribution to Australia. Yet despite all of that and them having such strong connections uh, between both countries and understanding both countries, I think this asset is sparsely surfaces at leadership levels, nor through participation in bilateral dialogues with India. So I think if we are serious about building our bilateral ties, that needs to change and our diaspora needs to play a more influential role. The importance of soft diplomacy, I think, is a really important point to make. And my sense is that sometimes it's the security or the hard power elements of the relationship that tend to get emphasised, things like the quadrilateral security dialogue. And you mentioned, you know, the security environment is actually an important part of the picture for why Australia and India are deepening ties. But what do you think of the Quad and other sorts of initiatives that are being undertaken to strengthen security ties? Well, I think the security relationship is a lot more advanced than other parts of the relationship with India. I think the resurgence of the Quad is a very good example of that. You know, the quadrilateral dialogue made up of the US, Japan, Australia and India. I think also Australia obviously being invited by India to join the Malabar naval exercises, which I understand are taking place as we speak, is another obvious example 
Another thing is that both nations recently elevated their rules-based maritime cooperation in the Indo-Pacific to a partnership to ensure, you know, security and stability in the maritime region. So I don't see a problem with that sort of focus on the security side of the relationship. Our bilateral relationship needs to have attention given to it, though, on other various levels. I mean, some of them talked about in terms of trade and investment. Geopolitical and defence is obviously an important part of that, but so is soft diplomacy, so is our people-to-people links. So perhaps we do need to give a bit more attention to some of those other areas of the relationship. But I think we need to look at the sort of history in terms of where we find ourselves as two nations now. India and Australia are much more aligned today in how they see the world compared to at the time, say, of India's independence in 1947, 75 years ago, when they both were on the opposite sides of the power blocks of of the Cold War. Now we share this sort of common ground in terms of our strategic interests, a more open Indo-Pacific. I think in terms of the economic side, if India was to make more structural reforms, we could be a lot more aligned in terms of our importance of an open economy. So I think on the strategic side, I think it's important that Australia continues to support India in terms of its multilateral efforts. I know that on the international stage, it's currently the president, I think, yeah, this month of the UN Security Council. It's part of its two-year non-permanent seat. Australia has been a strong supporter of India's bid for a permanent seat. I think that's really, really important and something that's in the interest of both uh, nations. But I think there does need to be other areas that Australia could show support for India beyond the strategic. India is very much engaged in other sorts of global institutions, such as the International Solar Alliance. That's one example. Or we could develop, you know, our shared commitments to scale up vaccine manufacturing as part of our commitments to COVAX, for example. These two middle powers could work a lot closer together on lots of other economic and security issues in the Indo-Pacific region. I think all of that will benefit each other as global citizens that are trying at the moment to help shape perhaps a new regional and global order. So all of it can only strengthen our relationship and, of course, the strategic part is crucial to that. Yeah, we have a question in the Q&A which actually aligns with a question that I wanted to ask you too, and that is about uh, what can be done to improve uh, understanding of India, nation and the culture and people within Australia. And to add to that question about uh, improving our understanding is a question about Asian literacy or generally our understanding in Australia of Asian cultures and some of the issues around hollowing out of Asian studies and language programs across universities. So do you see that this is a problem in in sort of deepening our understanding of India in particular? Uh, And what do we need to do in order to promote our understanding of Indian nation and people? This question takes me back to a role I played about a decade ago, I think now, when I was in the Gillard Labor government on the Australia and the Asian Century white paper. Part of that white paper included Asian studies and Asian languages. It was a central pillar to it. I think about that engagement and advocacy at that time a decade ago and now look a decade on and we still have a lot more work to do in this space as a nation. 
I'm actually back currently learning Hindi again. I say again because it's a bit of a stop start because I believe learning the national language of a country helps you understand the history and the culture and the people at a deeper level. And I think we need overall to lift the conversation on India. There is, I think, more of a a shallow understanding of India and Australia compared to China, for example. Growing our understanding of one another beyond cricket would be in the national interest, I think, of both countries. And our diaspora has to play a, a pivotal role in that. I think, though, that, you know, as part of the the 75th year of India's independence, restoring our people-to-people links by repairing some of those COVID-19 policy decisions would go a long way for our diplomacy and our dosti with India, but also considering the size of our diaspora in Australia in years to come, their understanding of both Australia and India becomes even more important. And look, I'm really interested in how many people in Australia actually were aware of India's Independence Day last Sunday. I think that was reflective on social media, for example, of engagement with India's diaspora celebrating independence. But at the same time, I think there was recognition through that and hopefully a broader understanding of India through that, through the diaspora of some of the struggles that India and Indians have gone through to get to that point of independence, which helps them understand the history of our diaspora and their ancestors. And I think for me, reflecting back on, you know, the salt satyagraha and what that means for our growing Australian Indian community, the stories of struggle of independence from the British Raj that will be passed down from generation to generation is really, really significant. My own great-grandparents had left India 20 years before the Dandy March to work in the colonies under harsh indentured labour. But I would like to think that if they had still been in India, they would have joined the millions of Indians who fought for an independent India. So I think the broad Australian community would be useful if they were more aware of this history I know that they're becoming increasingly aware of India through cultural festivals like Diwali and and Holi and, of course, dare I say it, our cricket diplomacy. But I think their understanding of the history, the current geopolitical dynamics and the economic potential is still undercooked. And I think this is where our academic institutions like La Trobe can play a role here as well as existing Australia-India bodies like um, the Australia-India Youth Dialogue, the Australia-India Institute. So I think this is where the importance of soft diplomacy comes to play again and shouldn't be underestimated. It threads through so many facets of the relationship from, you know, business relations to arts to culture, and they are all key. They're all building blocks to our shared and trusted bilateral relationship, and there's a lot more we can do in that space. Well, there are a couple of questions that I might just collapse together in the Q&A about the people-to-people links and and the diaspora. One of those questions is about the DFAT cultural diplomacy grants and there's whether or not there's enough scope to support smaller engagements with smaller organisations with a comment that's made that the Australia-India Council's grant seems to go to larger organisations, perhaps like universities. And then a second question is around this idea of the India diaspora as an untapped resource and some sort of specific examples of how the Australian government might engage with India diaspora to help deepen the ties between the two states. 
On the grant side, uh, look, I can only speak on behalf of the Australian Indian Council that obviously administers a grants program. I know we go through a very rigorous assessment process and we are always oversubscribed. So there's always some incredible standout applications amongst too many. That's where more investment in the relationship and in the soft diplomacy side would always be welcomed. If government was up for that, uh, I'd certainly be encouraging them to do it. On the people-to-people example side, in terms of that making influence at the political level, you know, I think we have a lot more to go here and I think this is an area where some research is needed. I think we need to look at the ways in which the US and the UK and Canada have really engaged their Indian diasporas. I think that would be a starting point for me. I don't have all the answers in terms of how we do navigate into those sorts of political and hierarchical dynamics. Suffice to say that representation is certainly not good enough, and that's not just in the public sector, it's the private sector as well, uh, need to, you know, be given the light of day into the sort of government policy processes so that some of these changes can come about. The more sort of data and the more research we have in terms of, you know, the broader Asian diaspora in Australia and their influence and representation in some of the most important leadership roles and and rooms in Australia, the more information we have on that to be able to find the solutions, the better. I think I agree with you on the issue of more funding for public and cultural engagement activities. Uh, That sounds like a a good place to start. I'm going to ask one final question from our Q&A box, and it's a question from the South Asia Times in Melbourne, and it is relating to the economic discussion. India is reluctant for a free trade agreement with Australia as it fears it will be flooded with dairy and foodstuffs hurting local producers. How might this issue be overcome? I'm not sure if that's quite true. Obviously, there's some history here in terms of past attempts for a free trade agreement. But at the moment, I'm aware that both India and Australia have appointed trade negotiators to look at the Comprehensive Economic Cooperation Agreement to see how more resources can be put into driving a free trade agreement forward. I think parts of that question, though, in terms of the impacts on India are are real and will need to be worked through. But I think we also need to look at the fact that India's economy is changing. You know, it's it's coming from the informal to more of the formal. It's it's moving from a a more agrarian economy to more of an urbanised economy. There's a number of changes which brings all sorts of opportunities for Australia in terms of trade investment and in terms of of a free trade agreement. So, My understanding is that Minister Piyush Goyal has appointed a a trade negotiator. Our trade minister, Dan Tian, has done likewise, and those negotiations will start to move forward. Don't know how long that may take, and that's why I said back earlier that I think we need to sort of look at the small wins along the way, not just the big one. So let's see. I look, I think there's benefits on both sides here in terms of this. I mean, we, we know that huge benefits in terms of Australia on the on the economic side with India. But there's also huge challenges currently at the moment. I mean, I think that the fact that India is our seventh largest trading partner is, is not good enough. Uh, China is still our number one trading partner. You know, I think two-way goods and services trade in the past year was something like 
24.4 billion, you know, that's that needs to improve. And there's lots of hurdles that need to be achieved for that to be improved. But, you know, of course, India still has a number of tariffs on all sorts of things with Australian wine, I think is a good example. But overall, I think this is worth putting a lot of hard work and effort into. And that's what it's going to take. It's going to take a lot of effort. And that's, I think, a thing that we haven't always had in the past. We've had some stop starts. Now we need continuum. That means a lot of resources and a lot of commitment. Look, I know I said that was the last question, but if you will indulge me, Lisa, I do see that there is another question uh, about the issue of shared values and shared interests. And it comes from Erin Watson, who's a friend of ours at the Trove Asia. Hi, Erin. And she says, how do you reconcile the narrative around shared values and shared interests when the current administration, uh, I assume the current administration in India, is increasingly authoritarian? Does this undermine Australia's diversification strategy away from China? I think the shared interests and the common values are very entrenched. They've been there for a very long time, you know. I mean, you're talking about Australia engaging with a country that is the largest democracy in the world, part of the Commonwealth, values the rule of law, has more and more strategic and economic shared values as well, believes in multilateralism and an international rules-based order, Obviously, there's all sorts of areas of diplomacy that we share in terms of sport, cricket and the like. The the relationship has just got so much going for it beyond the sort of domestic politics going on in either country on any day of the week. And I think that's what has to be sustained throughout millennia. Governments do change, (laughs) as we've seen in Australia as much as, as anywhere else. And I think what needs to be a mainstay for Australia and India is that despite any sort of government hiccups or internal disputes or changes in government even over time, that the relationship is able to continue to have momentum and to be sustained because it's in both countries' interests in terms of changing the regional order in which we live and having a sustainable and a secure Indo-Pacific region. Thank you, Lisa. That was really fascinating. It's a a delight to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Beck. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia. If you like the podcast, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or other podcasting platforms. You can follow us on Twitter. I am at Beck Strading and La Trobe Asia is at La Trobe Asia. I'm Beck Strading and thanks for listening.